open your Bibles up to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the 23rd chapter. We'll be reading this week and studying verses 25 to 28, Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 25. The scribes and the Pharisees were Israel's religious leaders at a time when the line between religious leaders and political leaders was not observed as we observe it today in the separation of church and state. So these scribes and Pharisees were the men that the Roman civil authorities leaned upon to keep political peace. They were the men who mattered in Jerusalem and in Judea. And Jesus is rebuking and condemning them in this section of Matthew. You know also that sometimes in the Gospels, there's a third group of religious leaders referred to as Sadducees. The Sadducees were the elite uh, snooty religious leaders. They were the ones that would have been in uh, in the Anglican or Episcopal Church, highbrows. Um, they were Presbyterians, but probably more the mainline type than the, the, the PCA type. And <clears throat> then there were the scribes, and the scribes would have been the seminary professors and the writers of books, and the people who specialized in the details of the text of Scripture. And then there were the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the conservative Baptist and PCA pastors, people like me. Uh, generally, they did not live high on the hog. You know, they didn't live in Hyde Park. They lived uh, probably on the west side or maybe the near east side or something. They were not known uh, to be people that feasted and partied. They tended to be more disciplined. Um, the Sadducees were, uh, they had a kind of intellectual faith that went well with being wealthy. Now, it doesn't mean that the scribes and Pharisees weren't wealthy, and we'll see some of uh, the reality of their lives as we go through this text. Anyhow, Jesus is condemning them, the scribes and the Pharisees, and depending on who counts them, that are seven or eight woes. Uh, seven or eight, Matthew Henry says, claps of thunder or flashes of lightning from Mount Sinai. The first woe is verse 13, where Jesus says about these religious leaders, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And so we see here that the scribes and Pharisees, the Jews' religious leaders, <laughs> thank you, dear brother, the Jews' religious leaders, opposed the gospel and Jesus Christ, working against the salvation of the very souls that were under their care, the souls looking to them to lead them to God and his kingdom. The second woe is verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. And so what we see here is that the scribes and Pharisees were greedy and covetous, and they used their religious credentials to hide it and to make it easier for them to get what they wanted. They used their long prayers and other pious and religious actions as a way of worming their way into lonely widows' affections and bank accounts, and then they stole the widows' houses and money. They were robbers. The third woe is verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte or to evangelize, to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. 
And so the scribes and Pharisees, the Jews' religious leaders, were completely committed to evangelism. But it wasn't evangelism to the God or to the covenant of Israel. It wasn't evangelism to the gospel of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Rather, it was evangelism to their own gospel that was false. It was it was making converts to themselves. They made converts to themselves instead of the kingdom of God. The fourth woe is pretty long. It's verses 16 to 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And then down to verse 23, we skip. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe men and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And so we see that the scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, perverted and twisted the third commandment, which says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. They made all kinds of distinctions that were false between the kind of oath that was binding and the kind of oath that didn't bind you. Uh, Their aim was to cause tithing and religious gifts to increase, and thus they caused the name of Almighty God to be dishonored. And then in verse 24, it says, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And so the scribes and Pharisees made mountains out of molehills and molehills out of mountains. They majored in the minors and minored in the majors. They were called by God and looked to by the people to be guides, but they were blind. And how did they demonstrate their blindness? Jesus condemns them for twisting the character and name of God to the end that men were allowed out of some oaths, but not others when both should have been binding. And second, they were focusing on tiny things while completely overlooking and casting to the side the things that really mattered, particularly justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now we turn to the fifth and the sixth woes found in verses 25 to 28. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Focusing on externals is at the center of middle class culture. Focusing on externals is at the center of middle class culture. If you've ever been in a class where an English professor, a sociology professor, has referred to bourgeois bourgeois culture, all right, you know that bourgeois culture is not the proletariat. And those are fancy words of saying that white collar isn't blue collar, that people that talk and chatter for a living are not people who sweat for a living. And people who talk and chatter for a living and write and use words and talk loudly in restaurants are people who are very focused on how they look to others. If you've ever tracked 
novels written about bourgeois culture, you know that at the center of those novels is lampooning and making fun of middle class people who are fixated on how they look to others. If you ever read a novel of Flannery O'Connor, you know that generally her characters are out there in their wickedness and perversity. And so when we think about middle class culture, we need to recognize that all of us either aspire to be middle class and have failed to get there so far or are middle class. In other words, America is the nation in history where everybody's middle class. Now you say, no, 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 we have some poor people. And I say to you, look, the poorest of our poor are richer than the richest of the rich in any other time in history. And you say, well, that's an exaggeration. I say, yeah, but it's basically true. If you can sit in an apartment, have plenty of food, have your heat turned up to 85 all winter through Wisconsin winter, which is pretty cold, have the television blaring, and have $40 hands of poker from Friday afternoon to Monday morning, early in the morning, constantly at your, at your dining room or, well, your, 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 your table, all right? This is the home that used to babysit Heather when she was a little baby in our low-income housing. You're rich. And the only reason you think you're poor is because of the concept of relative deprivation, which is you look at Hyde Park and you say, no, they're rich. And it is an aspect, an identifying characteristic of middle class people that we are very, very fixated on our appearance. We take great care about our hair, great care about our clothing, great care about our shoes uh, this morning I thought to myself, yes, the rest of the week I have worn sandals, but I ought not to do that Sunday morning because my brother David would have a fit if he saw me, and he won't see me, but even if he finds out. Now, maybe you think I'm twisted that I thought that this morning, but I'll bet you thought something about what you wore too. And so any American should have no problem at all understanding what's going on here, where Jesus focuses on the distinction between what's inside a man and what's outside a man, on how he appears and what he really is. That's what's at the center of these woes. And what he says about the Jewish religious leaders of the time is that they're really fixated on keeping the outside of the cup and the dish clean, while inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Now, Jesus here addresses a cup and a dish, and you know as he addresses a cup and a dish that what he's really talking about is a container for what you drink and a container for what you eat. And food and hygiene were a major part of the ceremonial laws that God had commanded the Jews to keep as his covenant people, and the scribes and Pharisees were vigilant for God's commands, particularly on these matters. To them, it was no laughing matter. They were zealous for cleanliness. Matthew 15 records another confrontation between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And there we read, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. 
by tithes. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. And here we see the theme again. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Now, listen, come on. If there's anything that goes against the culture of Bloomington, it's this. I remember Chantal when she got a good job up in Indy at at Keystone. She's here today, so I can say this. Uh, I remember her explaining to me the difference between, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, the difference between the body shop and... And bath and body works. Because, you know, like an ignoramus, I didn't know the difference. And Chantal, as a sales person, quickly enlightened me about the difference between a place that would take chemicals and put it on your skin and a place that would take fruit. And natural ingredients and put it on your skin. All right? Now... Take that from cosmetics, take that from soap, from a lotion, and apply it to food. We don't have any trouble understanding this, right? Jesus says what? Hear and understand it's not what enters into the mouth, not what's put on the skin that defiles a man. He doesn't say skin, I'm I'm adding that. But what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. And then the disciples came and said to me, this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite parts of the Gospels. And I'm wondering, Tim Wagner didn't remember in the first service. Any of you remember what comes next? Okay, then the disciples came and said to him, what? Anybody? Anybody? Come on. I love it. Here's what they said to him. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? <laughs> you know, I think some guy comes up front in front of you, in front of you, and he says to me, Woe to you, PCA pastor, you hypocrite, you viper, you're a son of hell, on and on and on. And then the disciples come up to him and, and they say to him, Do you realize that Tim was upset with you? hilarious and jesus answered and said every plant which my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted do you think he got more careful about offending the religious leaders when he said that no every plant that's not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted and we'll return to this later but what you need to note here is Jesus confronts them. The disciples say, do you realize these big religious leaders are offended? Jesus says, if they're not planted by God, they'll be uprooted. And the process has already started. I've exposed them before you. Don't be offended on their sake. Rather, realize God has not ordained them. God has not planted them. And they will be uprooted, and it started. Okay? Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Well, excuse me, I I skipped the point. He says, every plant which my heavenly father didn't plant should be uprooted. Let them alone. 
They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the stomach passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not hard to understand. This is not rocket science. Jesus is not speaking against washing our hands, is he? Washing hands is good. But when you're J. Paul Getty, you have a problem. When you're Bob and what about Bob, you have a problem. Remember the beginning of the movie where he's leaving his apartment, he doesn't want to get dirty, and so he takes his handkerchief and he doesn't touch the doorknob, but he, he uses the handkerchief to touch the doorknob. Why? Because he has a fixation with clean hands. Actually, was it Hunt or Getty? I think it was Getty, wasn't it? Yeah, completely fixated with cleanliness. Right? Yes, you should wash your hands before you come to the table and eat. If you work in, in a hospital, if you're a physician, if you're a nurse, you should wash your hands between patients. It's imperative that we have clean hands to avoid uh, contagious diseases. But Jesus says what? Jesus says fornications, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, thefts, fault with and slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus was not saying don't wash your hands. Jesus was pointing to the heart. And in Jesus' response to the Pharisees' confrontation concerning food and cleanliness earlier in his life, we see the same theme he repeats here in our text. The true godliness and faith focus on what's inside a man, not what he looks like, his external appearance. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Now, thinking that Jesus is speaking of the outside and inside of the cup and dish, we could make the mistake so common today of giving more care and attention to what we eat and drink than how we eat and drink. Speaking of the cup, we could think that Jesus is speaking of the cleanliness or holiness of what we put in it. And so what would we learn? Well, what we would learn is that there's a pecking order to wine and to beer. No cheap wine, but only the best. And we begin to learn the words that describe the palate. We're able to go in a restaurant and not make a horse's patouche of ourselves when the waiter holds the line out with the... And, you know, we know how to do it. And so we're sophisticated consumers of wine. This is what Jesus is talking about. What's inside? Not the bottle. But whether the wine is corked. Or we could focus on soda pop and switch from soda pop to energy drinks. 
Or we could focus on coffee changing from Starbucks to fair trade coffee. Or we could switch to tea, noting how much better it is for us to consume antioxidants. Or we could put felders on our tap water, or we could buy our water for drinking. We could become teetotalers, drinking no alcohol at all in the hopes that if none of it ever enters our mouth or the mouth of our children, they'll never be tempted to drink it intemperately and become an alcoholic. And speaking of the dish, we could clean up our diet. Specifically, we could begin to study our diet, finding out which meats and vegetables and seafood and fish and kinds of fruit are healthy and which will kill us. We could stop eating meat. We could become vegans and cease consuming any milk, eggs, or cheese. We could be scrupulous to avoid sugar. We could consume only free-range chickens. We could switch from ground beef to ground turkey. We could make a vow to buy only locally grown produce. Who knows? Maybe Jesus is addressing the economics of sustainability. Nothing like locally grown and produced food for earth-sensitive living. It's not all about carbon emissions, is it? There are, there are many, many, very, very many ways of neglecting what's inside the cup and the dish, instead focusing on what's outside them. And one of the ways is to focus on what's inside them and to completely miss the point again. Because almost without exception, everything I just mentioned is to focus on the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate. Now, I'm prepared to say to you that there are some meats that we shouldn't eat because of the way the animals are treated. I don't have any hesitation in saying that. But not because the animals are killed, because God gave the animals to man who bears his image and glory. Now, I'm prepared to say that there are some stores that you shouldn't shop in, some businesses you shouldn't patronize, some churches you shouldn't go to, because the stores and the businesses and the churches are filled with dead men's bones because they are filled with what? They are filled with robbery and self-indulgence. Okay, does that make sense? Jesus is exposing the religious leaders of his time, and he's saying, these guys are hypocrites, these guys are dirty and filthy inside, because what's in the plate, what's in the cup, is self-indulgence and robbery. So that means that today there must be churches and pastors who are characterized by robbery and self-indulgence. Right? And you should avoid them, right? I mean, if this text says nothing else, it has to say that, right? You have to say yes. Somebody say yes. Now... You know you're going down the chute, right? You're about to be butchered, right? Okay, you said yes. Now, what churches? What pastors? And now everybody say no. Because, yeah, thank you. 
Thank you. Because, of course, you can you can you can you can be warned against the scribes and Pharisees and still be absolutely committed to having absolutely no application to the church and to pastors today. I mean, we'll get to this next week where what do you scribes and Pharisees? You lay tombs on the prophets that are dead and stone the living ones on the way home from the cemetery. In other words, you can be absolutely committed to the great prophetic word of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as you stone Moses. And you can be absolutely committed to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses as you stone Joshua. And you can be committed to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Joshua while you stone Jeremiah. You can love Jeremiah while you stone John the Baptist, and you can love all of them while you stone and crucify Jesus Christ. It never stops. That's what we're going to get into next week. So now again, Jesus says that it's indicative or it's an identifying mark of these religious leaders and the worship they lead and their religious exercises that they're very focused on the outside and completely neglect the inside. Okay? You know, what's really interesting is how we can think we're clean, we can comb our hair, we can put on deodorant, we can put on perfume and aftershave, we can shine our shoes, we can press our, our pants, we can, you know, we can be absolutely pristine and clean to everybody that looks at us. And all the while go through life thinking if any man knew what was in here. I remember Arnold Went. He was the welder in Partyville, where I used to be a pastor, where Heidi comes from. But he wasn't called Arnold. He was called Nuts. Nuts Went. And his house looked like a place that Nuts Went lived. Welders are a weird, a weird group. And uh, I bought a trailer from him once because welders generally weld well. And that's what a trailer is, is welding. And that trailer still still runs. It's excellent, most excellent trailer. Uh, not the one that Caleb bought from us. Uh, that wasn't made nearly as well. Um, <laughs> and so one day I was over talking to Nuts, and I got talking to him about his soul, and he was one hell of a man. Everything about him was disgusting. And I invited him to church. Well, our church was on the National Register of Historic Places. Beautiful church, corner lot, beautiful hardwood trees, prissy, clean. And Nuts looked at me and laughed, and he said, no. He says, I'll never come to your church. He said, if I came in your church, he said that the walls would fall in on me. Now, is it true that God would rain fire from heaven on Arnold Went if he came into the church of Jesus Christ? No. What is true is that Arnold Went could not conceive of sitting next to the people that, were, that despised him. Arnold Went was not Presbyterian socioeconomic bracket. That was his problem. And he knew that the walls, in other words, the people of the church, would sort of move and smile and move and smile. 
Jesus says what? Jesus says they're completely focused on the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. He speaks of robbery and self-indulgence. The way, the manner in which the scribes and Pharisees got their food and drink was robbery. Do you remember this from the previous woes? The robbery was what? Well, the robbery is that they preyed on widows and the poor. In Mark 12, 38 to 40, we read in his teaching, Jesus was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, where do you have banquets today? If nowhere else, you have them at weddings, right? Today, you can't have what we grew up seeing. You can't have simply coffee and tea and a wedding cake. Everybody has to have a banquet today for a wedding, right? Now, where do you have the banquets? Christian wedding, where do you have the banquet? Well, you have the banquet at a place that signals your social class because the principal purpose of a wedding is to signal your social class. It's not to marry anybody. That's why the bride's mother is so fixated on the wedding. I mean, anybody want to argue with me about this? <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm an expert at weddings. <laughs> and so where do you hold the wedding? Well, you hold it at the golf course. If you're Presbyterian. And Jesus says that they love the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. And then he says, who devour widows' houses. You ever thought about the connection between getting to have a seat of honor at a banquet at a country club and devouring the widow's house. You ever thought about that? Remember earlier I said that you're very willing to see that Jesus is confronting and exposing the religious leaders of his time, but we don't want it done today. And that's, again, because we're so focused on appearance. We want to never look critically at anything that has a religious veneer. Because we like veneers, you know. And so... How did they do this? Well, the scribes and Pharisees, according to verse 14 of this section we've been studying, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you receive greater condemnation. And so what they would do is they would dress up with robes or with suits and ties. They would put hairspray on their hair. They would come up at the beginning of the worship service with a robe on, and they would do this. They would, they would have the senior pastor and the junior pastor and whoever, you know, flunky Jody back here, and, and they'd walk in like this, and the Klieg lights would be on them, all the television lights, you know, and the television cameras would be following the pastors. Now, I'm just describing a church that I've worshipped in, as a matter of fact, when I was at Columbia Bible College, every Sunday I worshipped at a church like this. Some of the aspects were different. And they'd come in, the television camera's on them, and boy, when that light comes on you in, in the sanctuary, oh, you know that you live for that day. 
I mean, really. You know? I mean, I've waited years to be at a church where the Klieg lights come on me. <laughs> and just, just in the pews, I wasn't up front. So they parade in, and here's what they do. And, and of course, the walk is like the bridesmaids. And then when the full regalia, all right, they go like this. They fold their hands, put their arms down, and pray. I wonder what my wife is having for lunch today. I hope she has a good roast. Potatoes, carrots, and onions. I wonder if the horseradish has gone rancid. Iced tea. You think it's on the deck? No, it might rain this afternoon. And then up the stairs, the big chair, the small chairs, sit down. And this is what Jesus is saying is wicked. Because why? Well, it's wicked because it causes you to think I'm holy. And it has nothing to do with holiness. Absolutely nothing to do with holiness. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And those of you that are sophisticated in the way that you think, those of you who are particularly perverse and think other people are equally perverse, which is usually what sophisticated thinking is, all right, need to understand that a Presbyterian pastor that takes off his robe and off his suit coat and shows up in an open-collar shirt is just as capable of fooling you by doing that as he is by having a suit on. What matters is the heart. And the heart will never yield to the perverse, cheap, and oh-so-impressive manipulation of externals and superficial things. Some of you know that until a few years ago, I haven't done it recently, but until a few years ago, I uh, took great delight in having my beautiful daughters with me and walking through the cosmetics section of Nordstrom's or, or uh, um, Macy's or some of these department stores. You have these... Uh, clinicians in their white frocks, right? And they're sitting there lying to a rich woman. And that's what they're paid to do. And as I would walk down the aisle, I would give a beautiful smile to the woman sitting in the chair facing me as she was lied to. And as I walked up to her, I'd look at her and I'd say, it's hopeless And my daughters and my wife would just die. And do you know something? Let me tell you something. Every single time I ever did that, and I did it a number of times. (laughs) Do you know what happened? All of a sudden, the clinician stopped lying, the cosmetician, and the woman in the chair smiled. And it was sincere. 
Because, number one, they knew I wasn't being hostile. And number two, they knew it was true. And so you come to church, and you can go to two kinds of churches. One kind of church, will, when you come, it will lie to you about who you are and what you are. It will tell you that your externals are an indication of your internals. It will focus on superficial things. It will never allow you to confess sin because that's oh so gauche. It will never ask, allow you to ask prayer for a sexual sin because it's oh so gauche. Sophisticated people know you're not supposed to talk about things like that in public unless, of course, you're that perverse uh, that perverse man, Alfred Kinsey, and then the whole world will lodge you and make movies about you. But in church, we don't do that kind of thing. And so the world is filled with churches today. They're just like the churches at the time of Christ, religious leaders that are just like the religious leaders at the time of Christ, where instead of the church being a place for sinners who are broken and who think if he ever saw my inside, he would never talk to me again. All right? The church is supposed to be the place where we will not focus on externals but internals. And Jesus says, no, it's been flipped. Jesus said the whole point of the Old Testament law was to drive you inside to see your wickedness and to have you plead with God for mercy. And instead, you flipped everything inside out. Your total focus is on your externals and there's no room to repent. None! Now, I want to give an illustration. And the illustration is this. Have you ever thought about sexuality? Sexuality. I mean, it's like it's impossible not to think of it in our world today, right? You ever thought how perverse it is, how sexuality focuses on the externals and absolutely refuses to have anything to do with the internals of sexuality? <laughs> think about a woman's body, breasts, hourglass figure, right? What's the point of the hourglass figure? The point is the hips give birth. The point is the breasts nurture the little baby. There's a reason men are attracted to it. Because men are supposed to love babies. And so what do we do? What we do is we focus on the externals and absolutely deny the internals. So the most radical feminist who refuses to ever look to a man to defend her, the, the guy with the broad shoulders, right, is adamant that she will seize and control her fertility and she will not be imprisoned by a baby. And then that very woman will dress in a way that seduces men on national television. And nobody will call her out on it. And you'll have men who claim to be real men. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a perfect example of this. Who are unbelievably buff. And if you were to go up to Arnold Schwarzenegger and poke him in the nose, he would run. Even if you were 5'5 five five and weighed 110 pounds. Why? Because Arnold Schwarzenegger's muscles are for show. They're not to protect a woman. Do you think for a minute that Arnold Schwarzenegger would risk his face being marked up with your fist? No. And so he'd be a wimp. 
And that's the way all bodybuilders are. <laughs> so women that use their bodies to seduce men won't have babies. And men who use their bodies to seduce themselves are all narcissists. All right. What? They won't protect women. This is the world we live in. And now some of you are sitting there saying, oh, I can't believe he actually said that. And I think, so what? Comedians can say it, but a preacher can't? You know, in political commentary, everybody says that when the comedians begin to make jokes about it, it's all over. The lie's done. The truth will out. I read this last night. Everybody started lampooning the human rights councils of, of Canada. And everybody knew that free speech was going to return. <laughs> now, bring it back to Jesus and to holiness. Jesus says, you make a big show out of cleaning the outside of the cup and the outside of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery. In other words, the way they filled the plate was by preying on the widows. Now, does anybody do that today? Are there any religious leaders that pray on widows? Make long, showy prayers so that they can steal from widows. Does that happen anywhere today? Does that happen anywhere? A few years ago, a man left our church after I said something critical about Trinity Broadcasting Network. He'd been at our church for 10, 12 years. Been through thick and thin with us. But boy, I criticized Trinity Broadcasting Network and he was gone. And he was livid with fury after that sermon that morning. And I even said that there were some good people on Trinity Broadcasting Network, that they aren't all bad. Now listen, people. How can you look at what Jesus says and not see it in front of you? How can you do this? Jesus isn't saying this so the people of his time would take warning and flee and find faithful shepherds, and that you today would be at the mercy of every charlatan that comes along, you're supposed to learn something from the text of Scripture. So Jeff Moore sends me an article this week. Let me read from it. A new report, and, and shame on them, this is not published by Christianity Today or World. But this is published by Pagans. A new report shows that Orange County's first family of Christian broadcasting earned scads of silver leading the Trinity Broadcasting Network empire. Paul Crouch, the Poppin president, makes $419,500 a year. Janice Crouch, the mom and vice president, makes $361,000 a year. Paul Crouch Jr., the son and vice president, makes $130,082 a year. Add them up, comes out to about $930,000 a year. The Crouches are among the highest paid chief executives of religious nonprofits, according to the Chronicle of Philanthropy. So then you go to the Trinity Broadcasting Network's tax returns, which are public information. And there you find that in the most recent year reported, 2006, Trinity Broadcasting Network took in $200 million. 
And they spent $141 million of that amount and socked away the extra $59 million. And as of the end of 2006, their net assets stood at $839 million. And only one of you is wise enough to gasp and cover her mouth. The rest of us, it's, well, that's nothing compared to focus on the family. Assets of $839 million, almost a billion dollars. I could read you what their spokesman said when confronted by this. I could talk to you and tell you that in 1998, Paul Crouch paid off a lawsuit to get it out of the courts against him for sexual harassment and wrongful termination. The payoff was $425,000. I could tell you that Paul Crouch, interviewed by the Los Angeles Times, talked about the quid pro quo of the Christian life, he said, quote, if my heart really honestly desires a nice Cadillac, would there be something terribly wrong with me saying, Lord, it is the desire of my heart to have a nice car and I'll use it for your glory. And he added to the, New York, to the Los Angeles Times, I think I could do that. And in time, as I walked in obedience with God, I believe I'd have it, unquote. And what do the pagans say at the end of the article? Here's what they say. They say, and what's not to like about that? And that's the end of the article. I have spoken of Trinity Broadcasting Network before. And I speak of it critically, understanding that there are preachers on there who I believe do honor the Lord. I think the whole thing is a hellhole. And I know some of you will be offended by this. But how could I not say that when I'm preaching this text? And you'd say to me, well, why are you preaching this text? That's right. Can you imagine how often this text has been preached in America today? I'm just curious if any of you ever heard a sermon on this text before. Seven, I count, and I'm surprised by the seven. Because middle class people don't mess around with Trinity Broadcasting Network. What we mess around is with is First Presbyterian Church. And First Presbyterian Church isn't as gauche. The way First Presbyterian Church does it is that they have sermons which are a great show of biblical exegesis and exposition. In, in, indeed, verse-by-verse verse exposition. Credentials where our pastor went to Gordon-Conwell, where Billy Graham's on the board, and our pastor is very, very faithful to Scripture. We're members of a church that's faithful to Scripture. We have Scripture lessons. We sing only hymns with an organ or piano. Um, we only have men as elders and pastors, and men serve our communion, and, you know, on and on and on. And in the preaching, 
There's, a, there's never any confrontation of the preacher's heart and his sin or your heart and your sin. You never leave this place pleading with God for mercy. You sit there thinking, I'm the only dirty one in here. And the people next to you look at you and say, you're right. There's no true fellowship. There are no tears at the Lord's Supper. Jesus says what? Jesus says... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, what's going on here is that at this time, it's right before the Passover. And two weeks before the Passover, people went through Jerusalem and they they used whitewash and they painted all the tombs so that the tombs were beautifully white. Now, why did they do this? Well, they did this because it wasn't the habit then to have cemeteries where all the people were buried. The people could be buried all over the place. And sometimes families would die and the tomb would fall into disrepair and it would just look like another public place to sit and to rest. But if you sat and rested on a tomb, if you even touched a tomb, you were unclean ceremonially for seven days, according to the Old Testament. And so they went through two weeks before and painted everything white so that everybody would know that they shouldn't touch that or they might be ceremonially unclean and then they couldn't celebrate the Passover. The whole point of coming to Jerusalem at this time was to celebrate the Passover. So everything's whitewashed. Jesus says you're just like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly it appears beautiful, but inside there was nothing more filthy to a Jew than the remains of a dead man. And this is how he describes the religious leaders. Even so, he says, you too appear outwardly righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So inside robbery, inside self-indulgence, inside hypocrisy and inside lawlessness. Self-indulgence. Absolutely no limits on what we eat. Hagen dazs steaks, potatoes, good drinks, good wine. Eat at the preacher's table, you'll be well taken care of. Self-indulgence. Uh, no suffering for the sake of the church. No showing up at your house day and night with tears, which is how the Apostle Paul described his ministry in Acts 20. Day and night with tears. Night with tears. No tears. No night. As a matter of fact, hard to get an appointment. Self-indulgence. Remember what it says in Philippians. Whose God is their what? Their belly. There's something disgusting about a man of God who is self-indulgent. We all know that. Am I self-indulgent? Yes. And it's disgusting. And so, robbery, self-indulgence, hypocrisy, 
And then the final nail in the coffin of these religious leaders, which is what? It's so ironic. Anytime you bring up the word pharisaical, you think conformity to the law. And so the final thing Jesus says to them here is, you're lawless, you're antinomian, you're a rebel against the law of God. All this show, unbelievable show of submitting to the law of God, of knowing it, of putting up fences across fences, outside of fences, so they'd never, ever break the law. Perfectly law-keeping. And Jesus said they're lawless. Why? Remember earlier we talked about sexes meaning and function and how we separate the externals and the internal of sexuality. Well, here all these rules by God are given to drive a man to repentance and to faith. And instead, the rules are used to protect them from ever having to repent. And so they're lawless because the whole point of it is to drive them to believe in the provision of God for their sin, to see their sin. So true law-abiding is to see the cleanliness and the ceremonial laws and and the Ten Commandments. All these things are our schoolmasters leading us to the provision of God in Jesus Christ. And instead, what they do is they focus on these laws in such a way that they can be adulterers, they can be self-indulgent, they can be robbers, they can be hypocrites, they can be lawless, and everybody thinks that they're law-abiding, law-keeping, upright, pious, pharisaical, PCA, evangelical, Bible-believing, wonderful religious leaders. And what's going on? Well, what's going on is you pay me and I will protect you from the Holy Spirit. And there shouldn't be one person here that has any problem understanding that. Because you have lived that in your life. And so what is the solution? The solution is to see that the Bible exposes our sins. So not so that we will go and put on a show of righteousness in a church and have a pastor as our friend. But so that God will be our salvation. That's the purpose that you will grow in your knowledge of your wickedness and grow in your love for Jesus. That's the point. The point is to study your sinfulness. And every time you go to a preacher and you say to him, your sermons aren't uplifting, he knows immediately, if he preaches the word in truth, he knows immediately that you've been fooled by the Pharisees. That you think the purpose of going to church is to be confirmed in your hypocrisy. Instead of having it destroyed. I thought about getting up this morning and saying at the very beginning, I love you. And I do love you. And the reason I love you is as a congregation, you want me to be faithful. You want me to be. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Because I've had other, let me tell you. I don't have other. And then every man that preaches at this church 
He comes in and he says, whoa. And then he lets it fly. And he realizes that the more faithful he is here, the more the sheep love him. They recognize the voice of their master. I'm not the master. Jesus is. And they realize that if they'll speak for Jesus and let Jesus have his say, that the people will love him. If you listen to Jesus this morning and you realize in your heart of hearts that you are a rebel, that you're dirty inside and clean outside, the answer to that is Jesus. Because what the Bible tells us is that before we have faith in Jesus, we're all fixated on our externals fooling everybody, but once we come to the cross, we give it up. We give it up. And we think, you know, I really am a scumbag. And Jesus came to save scumbags. That's what Jesus said. He said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. I didn't come for the cosmetics people. I came for the people that have their shirt hanging out behind and maybe a little bit of something showing. And they're the people that I will save. You know, those people with something showing were the ones that became the preachers wasn't one member of the disciples who had a seminary degree. Not one. In fact, what the religious leaders said about them is they noted that they were unschooled ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. (laughs) All right. Admit who you are. Admit what your heart is. Go to God, and he says he will have mercy on you. And so the proper response to Jesus and what he says this morning is to say to God, God, would you please humble me? Would you please purify me? Would you please help me to see Jesus' holiness and my filth? And then would you give me a love for Jesus? And then the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old scum is passed away, and behold, everything becomes now. Everything. Not just the outside, but the inside. It's our privilege this morning to come to the Lord's table with the...